open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 9, and we're going to read the last paragraph of Romans 9. We are um, we headed down the home stretch with uh, Romans 9, which has been, of course, um, a, a, a chapter that seems to trip a lot of people up. Um, Maxine Arnold did say, was telling me earlier, that she's in Bible Study Fellowship, and they started... <laughs> They started studying Romans in um, in September, and they finished it um, today. Um, so they 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 uh, they studied Romans from uh, September to May. We've been doing it just a little bit longer than that. Um, I um, I think I started Romans when my firstborn uh, was uh, born, um, but but anyway, we we just kind of go slower around here, and I I hope that doesn't. Um, drive you to distraction. But we're at least coming upon the last paragraph of chapter 9. And we'll spend uh, probably three weeks, maybe just two, we'll see, on, um, on this last paragraph. Let me read it to you. It begins in verse 30. Uh, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Guys, um, this last paragraph is, is, a, uh, is a section which is somewhat of a summary of Paul's argument of Romans 9. Uh, his opening question in verse 30 is a, is a frequent formula. It's, uh, it's typical Paul. Uh, he uses it in verse 14, I think. Yeah, what shall we say? Well, he, he uses it in verse 30, so you see it at least you see it two times in the same chapter. But it's, it's a way that he introduces um, the fact that he has brought or has come to a conclusion in his argument. Uh, in essence, he is saying, in light of all that I have said earlier, what is the position to which we have arrived? Where are we? As a result of what I've said, where have we come to? What shall we say then? And that's where we are. That's what that first little question's about. He gives you some facts in verse 30, and then he gives you, verse 30 and 31, and then he gives you an explanation of those facts in verses 32 and 33, and thus we're ready to launch. Um, verse 30. What shall we say? Well, here's what we'll say. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Now, um, Gentiles were not brought in to the household of God because they were nice people, that they were this uh, little sweet bunch of folks that God saw fit to, um, to include. No, no, by, by um, uh, a, a far stretch from being a bunch of nice folks. In fact, if you want to read a description of them, you can find a fairly apt description in, um, in Romans chapter 1. But Paul summarizes the, the, uh, the position of the Gentile in, in Ephesians 2 when he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
That's Ephesians 2.12, and that's a description of the Gentile. Now, all I'm saying is, it wasn't because these were nice people that God saw fit to include them. Uh, in fact, their lifestyle was anything from, from admirable and applaudable. And yet, those people with that very unapplaudable lifestyle were told in verse uh, 30, they have attained it. The Greek word's interesting. It's a word that, I, that, I, that you could translate, they've seized it. They, they've taken hold of it. And how is it that they did that? How is it that the Gentiles, who were not seeking righteousness, have attained it? Well, you're told. They attained it, that righteousness, they attained it by faith. Now, guys, that is the great theme of the New Testament. A justification that is by faith and not by works. And there's a couple of key words in these passages. One of the key words is righteousness. They, um, they, they weren't pursuing righteousness, but they attained it. How are we to understand that word first, righteousness? Well, let me just offer this. Um, you can understand it a couple of ways, really. There's, there's um, depending on the context, uh, because, well, we'll keep that for later. But um, uh, how do you attain a right standing for God, before God or righteousness? Or righteousness is, is the righteous requirements of God's law. Whatever way uh, uh, is more comfortable with you. But let me use it like this. Righteousness is a right standing before God. Okay. If understood that way, how did the Gentiles attain a right standing before God? Well, they did that by faith. Now, guys, um, that's a... That's a a very uh, familiar message that uh, a man attains a right standing before God by faith and not by works, That's some, that seems to be pretty well known and pretty widely understood in a bunch like this. But let's not run too fast over um, just, just, just an understanding of, of that faith thing. Let's do that real quick and we'll move on. Faith. What do we know about it? Well, we know first that it is a gift. That much we know from Ephesians 2. 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved by faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Uh, the faith that saves, first of all, is a gift. We know that much about it. Uh, a second thing that we know about faith is that it works. Not in the sense that, oh, that'll work. Um, that's not what I'm saying. Um, saving faith works. That is, it, wor it produces something, which is the very argument of James in chapter 2. Oh, gosh, beginning at verse 11, maybe verse 16 and going through 24, something like that. Um, but, the, but the point of James is that legitimate, um, real saving faith works. It, um, it exercises, it produces uh, evidence that it's real. So it's a gift, it works. The other thing that, that I want to, I'm going to mention some more things in a minute, but uh, a third thing I want to mention is it's very important that it has the right object. Now, uh, these two I think are, are fairly uh, familiar to you. This is something I want to, I want to spend a minute on. Um, because guys, uh, uh, if you enter into a conversation with people who don't know the Lord Jesus and, 
um, they had this vague understanding of what faith is. Um, first of all, let me tell you um, what, what I mean. Um, this saving stuff um, is not faith in faith. In terms of its object, the object of faith is not faith. The reason that I'm uh, a redeemed human being is because I have faith. No, that's not right. No, it's not just faith in faith that, um, that, makes me, that gives me a right standing before God. Nor is this faith that gives me a right standing before God, nor is it mindless. Uh, you talk to somebody and you say, well, um, uh, you, you're a Christian, are you? Yeah, yeah, I've been a Christian a long time, all my life. I say, well, well why are you a Christian? Why, why is it that you're a Christian? Well, you know, because uh, I got faith. Well, um, faith in what? Well, I don't know. I just got faith. I mean, I got faith. And that's what you need. You just need faith because I heard my preacher say, stay by faith. And I heard that and, and uh, I just got faith. Now, guys, that's, uh, that's what I mean by mindless. Um, um, let's imagine that we're passengers on a commercial airlines. Now, when we, uh, when we buy that ticket from Expedia.com, um, we are exercising a measure of faith there, but nothing like we, me- we exercise when we show up at the airport. Um, because... Um, uh, you know, we we uh, we go through the frisking and um, you know taking off your shoes and and uh, you know uh, and you know and then you finally get through there and you come to your gate and you know you uh, they say it's it's time for uh, you know the people back in the economy class to load up, which is yummy. But anyway, you um, you get yourself on that plane and and you know you you sit down there and you buckle up and and. Um, uh, the guy next to you says, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, I got faith. Well, faith in what? Well, just uh, just faith. I just got faith. And I say to him, I say, um, okay, Bubba, um, you just, we're about to, this plane's about to take off. And it just did. Now, to do that, you had a great deal of exercise. I mean, you exercised a great deal of faith in that, in that event. You, um, you put faith in the pilots, but they're fairly proficient. You put uh, faith in the um, the uh, the engineers that designed these aircraft, as dumb as they might be. That's for you, Trevor. Um, uh, and then uh, you put faith in the maintenance folk uh, that take care of this airplane, and and uh, then you put uh, faith in the air traffic control people. I mean, you just exercise faith. A lot of people get your little honey on that thing to think it off, didn't you? What if I told you? Um, what if I told you that the, the air traffic controllers are asleep, that the maintenance people all called in sick, that the um, um, uh, designer of the aircraft is an alcoholic, and the pilots are on drugs? I mean, does it matter? The, the point is, guys, um, the faith is just as good as its object there is an object to this faith that we say gives us a right standing before God. It's not mindless. And mindless faith won't give you a right standing before God. What will give you a right standing before God is a faith in the right object. 
And of course, the right object is the triune God in his person and his work. But the, the, um, faith and faith, uh, faith and faith, that's the wrong object. No object is the wrong object. The right object is the triune God who's revealed in the scriptures. Guys, um, faith's value um, is rooted in the soundness and the worthiness of the object. And if it's not placed in the right object, stop blithering about faith. Because the, 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 the faith that, that, that Paul has in view here as giving someone a right standing before God is, is a gift. It, it shows up in a, an ex, in a different lifestyle. Um, it, it doesn't say, I can believe and then carry on as usual. doesn't do that. But it's also something that's exercised in the right object. So, um, to use the word requires that these things be rightly understood. So, um, what you have here is Paul saying that the Gentiles attained to a right standing before God because they had a faith that was a gift that showed up in the, the, the changed lifestyle and it was placed in the right object. Now, guys, I want to say just a, uh, that's, that's kind of definitional. But this is kind of personal. Um, um, I, I do a lot of thinking in the mornings. Um, and I, uh, I do my best thinking in the mornings. And, you know, I was up at 6.04 this morning. And so from about 6.34 uh, till about, 8.34, I'm thinking. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking, um, I, I'm, I'm trying to think thoughts that are consistent with what I just read in that book. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to weigh things and, and um, come to something that's decent for my own life and worthy of you listening to. So that's what I want to give you right now. Something that I hope is worthy of you listening to. In terms of faith, you know, you've got this wonderful definition of faith in, in uh, Hebrews 11, 1 through 6. Um, but that definition uses the word conviction. It's the conviction of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, etc., etc. What I'm trying to do is help, is trying to take that and, and translate these convictions Saving faith shows up in some convictions. Okay? Um, um, one of the convictions that I think it shows up in is that um, this is just off the, uh, the world is the unseen one. You know, guys, um, I, I wish I could tell you how I, but it would just take so long to tell you why I say this. But uh, Psalm 
49 or thereabout. We can find it real quick if you like, but um, I tell you what, I'm going to find it real quick. You don't need to turn to this, but uh, um, um, the psalmist says, do not be afraid. Uh, yes, there it is. It's Psalm 49. How about that? That is impressive, at least to me. Um, do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies he will carry nothing away, his glory will not go down after him, for though while he lives he counts himself blessed, and though you get praised when you do well for yourself, uh, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers and will never see a uh, light again. Now, I found that very, very interesting. And, and here's what I found interesting. It says, be not afraid when a man becomes rich. It doesn't say, don't covet his wealth. It doesn't say, don't envy his wealth. It says, don't be afraid. Now think about that. Why would the psalmist say, that when a man becomes rich, when, when Phil Mickelson uh, wins a golf tournament and walks away with a check for $1.62 million, why would that scare you? Why would that, why would that create... Now, envy, man, yeah, i got plenty of that for everybody. Um, you know, um, yeah, fretting and, uh, you know, yeah, i got that too. But why does he say, don't be afraid of that? And here's the conclusion that I came to. Don't be afraid of it because there's the fear. Oh my, I'm missing out on a life that is more substantive, more... When I see a man become rich, then I begin to think, wait a minute, I, I, I'm missing that life and I don't get that one. And the psalmist says, don't be afraid. Because the world is the unseen one. Don't let that frighten you. Because faith gives you a conviction that the world, the one that really matters, is the unseen one. Um... Which leads me or led me to another conviction, and that is God is the reality. What I'm praying presently is that God will give me this. That all other realities bow to and get their definition from this reality. So all of life is interpreted through the grid that God is the primary reality. Not the sole reality. Um, a bankruptcy is a reality. But it's a reality that bows to and gets its definition and nature from this reality. Faith gives you that kind of conviction that God is the reality.
and then the the other conviction that I that I <laughs> that I think faith engenders is that the pursuit of this God. Is the life. Um, faith, instead of being some kind of mindless thing, fixes itself upon an object that is so overpowering that it becomes the chief and dominant reality in your life. And so to pursue Him is the life. It is the good life. That's what, I, that's what I think the Bible, or at least part of what the Bible has in view when it talks about faith. We, we've, almost, we've almost emptied the word because, because we, just, we, we, we have some idea that it's a nod in Jesus' direction, that he did a great thing at the cross for me and that's really good and then let's go on with life. I'm telling you... Somewhere in my Christian development, it begins to produce convictions in me. Convictions that the real world is the unseen one. That this is just a dress rehearsal for that one. And so all of the inequities, all of the injustices, all of the difficulties, all of the trials, all of the pain, they become, they become less real to me. I see that stuff. <laughs> you know, I used to use a real bad word, but my wife won't let me use it anymore. Uh, it's the worst word that my wife, that I ever was able to use in public, but I can't use it anymore. Um, crap. So I, I, <laughs> I just wanted to tell you what the word was, but I, I, did, I, did, I didn't use it. <laughs> I don't use that word anymore. Um, I, I see all of those things, but I see all of that stuff and it becomes more this is not a word handleable I can handle it because the real word is the unseen one because all of reality is interpreted through the reality in the existence of God you know I was reading the other day and, I, and this is in the midst of the um, the uh, plagues, you know, um, the, the God's getting Israel out of Egypt. And, and this just, you know, I, I bet you I've read this 400 times. And, and, and it says, um, um, I will stretch out my hands uh, uh, to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. <laughs> the earth is the Lord's. This is God's. So everything is interpreted through that reality. And then the pursuit of this God. That's what I was intended for. That's what I was designed for. And that's where life is its sweetest. It's its best. Um, Now, um, going back to the text. Um, so the Gentiles attained this, this right standing with God through that kind of faith. 
But look at verse 31. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Let me read this. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. There's that that cardinal doctrine of the New Testament again, justification by faith apart from works. But apart, looking at the text, verse 31, the Gentiles, they weren't looking for it, but they got it. Jews, on the other hand, they were in hot pursuit of righteousness. They really, they were really interested in that stuff. I mean, this is, um, righteousness was important to them. And that's the thing that breaks the apostle's heart. Look in verse two, he says, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart over these people. The righteousness was important to them. They weren't important to the Gentiles. I mean, they were pursuing every kind of godlessness. But for Judaism, righteousness was important. They, they wanted to be right with God, and they thought that the way to do that is to simply commit themselves to obedience to the law of Moses. They thought that would be plenty. That would do it. But that failed. And then Paul, just over in chapter 10, he says, verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They were interested in being right with God, but they pursued it all wrong. And that's the tragedy of Israel today, ladies and gentlemen. It's the tragedy of Judaism. They're interested in righteousness, or at least in some circles. But they go about it wrong. So what you you have here in verses 30 and 31 and 32, we'll come back to it next week too, but what you have is a picture. this This is the picture that you get. The outsider is in, and the insider is out. (laughs) The outsider who had no interest in righteousness is in, and the insider who really was uh, interested in righteousness is out. So all the people who never gave a hoot about righteousness, they now are. Righteous. And those people for whom righteousness was really important, they aren't. The insider is now the outsider. The outsider is now the insider. The one at the front of the line is now at the back of the line. The one at the back of the line is now at the front of the line. Does that seem right to you? I mean, isn't there some sort of um, miscalculation somewhere in all this? I mean, wait a minute. What? I mean, the Gentiles didn't have any. They were out worshiping trees. Now they're in. And there's those Jews, you know, they've got these 636 Sabbath laws and they really wanted to be right with Moses and, and they're out. That just doesn't seem right. I mean, um, I don't like that. Now guys, um, if, if, if there's any of that in your 
minds, hearts, or thoughts, or whatever, then, then what you've given evidence to is that you have a very faulty view of the gospel. Because God is not in the habit of granting grace and mercy to people who've worked for it. His, his M.O. is that He grants mercy and grace to people who aren't looking for it, who really don't care about it, and in many instances don't want it, and in most instances they don't understand it once they get it. And that's the people He grants mercy to. But if there's this sense of, wait a minute, you know, that's just not, that's not, that's not right. You know, they really work. They, you know, they, that's because you haven't yet grasped the beauty of the gospel. Um, people who didn't want it, didn't know they needed it, certainly didn't deserve it, and then once they get it, don't understand it. You know those people. Because they're us. We're the ones that get it. Because God delights in in granting grace to people who never contributed one iota to the getting of that righteousness and that mercy. Um, one quick thing and I'm done. Um, look at what he says. The Jews didn't lead to rights. They did not succeed in reaching the law. And then he says, he explains why. He begins by asking, because they did not pursue it by faith, but is it pursued by, based on works. But, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Guys, there's a, there's a real trouble with the law. Um, the trouble with the law is that uh, it says this. Um, that if you keep the whole law, but you violate it in one particle, you're guilty of violating the whole law. That's James chapter, I don't have it written down, but I think it's James 2. You, you, um, you, you violate the law in only one spot. If I lived my whole life and I was just perfectly obedient and I was the best of husbands and the best of fathers and, and then one night I had a bad day at the office and I come home and I kick the dog. I'm guilty of violation of the whole thing. There is um, there's a real flaw in the thinking of those who think that to get right with God, I've got to keep the law. Because once you violate it once, you become guilty of the whole blasting. Um, and my dear friends, as a pastor, 
I get a ringside seat to watch people striving to do the right thing but never succeeding. Faithless virtue is very ugly. A virtue that is born out of thinking that I've got to uh, perform so that I can get a right standing before God. It's the very height of arrogance and self-service. Let me say it again. Faithless virtue. It's very ugly. And I get to watch people try that. And it ain't pretty. The only people, says this text, that attain it are those who have this. Let's quit. Father, I do pray that you will make that abundantly clear to all of us that we might find ourselves um, more charmed by the gospel of grace that that overturns categories and changes pursuits and disrupts whole religious systems because it is rooted and founded in the merit of somebody else besides us. That this gospel of ours calls us to look away from self and on to the one who is altogether lovely. Christ Jesus the Lord. Thank you, Father, that for a bunch of Gentiles like our sitting in this room, you showed us the beauty of justification by faith. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.